Hello and welcome to another episode of The Discourse, the short-form one-on-one interview show with filmmakers, actors, and other industry folks, which is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. I am your host, Mike D'Angelo. On this episode, I got to sit down with writer, director, showrunner Jeb Stewart, who is currently out promoting his new show, Vikings Valhalla, which hits Netflix on Friday, February 25th. It is excellent. Do check it out if you're a Vikings fan. Uh, retro action buffs may recognize Jeb's name as the writer of Die Hard, uh, <laughs> one of the greatest action films of all time, and The Fugitive, and Another 48 Hours, and so many other action thrillers of the 80s and 90s. And we talk about that time in his career a bit, but we also get into what led him to television and becoming a showrunner for not only Vikings Valhalla, but the upcoming Assassin's Creed series that Netflix is producing. There's a tiny little tea in there and uh, because I'm a big Indiana Jones fan we even touch on his time as the very first writer through the door on Indiana Jones 4 which eventually became the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull Um, but uh, we talk about his version and you know his interactions with George Lucas and uh, Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford Uh, it's it's a fun little trek back into that time but before we get to our chat I've got to tell you that the discourse is a part of the playlist podcast network which includes the playlist podcast Bingeworthy and Yellowstoners which I'm also a part of also be real deep focus the fourth wall and more and it can be heard on itunes anchor fm soundcloud stitcher spotify all the you know podcast apps of choice be sure to subscribe and drop us a comment or a rating as we do very much appreciate it okay enjoy the discourse with the very kind and very great jeb stewart I just want to start out at the top by saying I'm a huge fan and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, Mike, I appreciate it. That's just, this is fun. Great. Yeah. Awesome. So let's just start out by discussing your, your newest show, Vikings Valhalla. I'm a fan of Vikings in general. Um, and I got to see all eight mm-hmm. episodes. I loved it. And I'm so mad that I can't have any more because it ends on such <laughs> like a, oh, like a, like a Viking <laughs> note that you just want to see what comes next. But I'd love to know how it came to you initially. Did Netflix pitch it to you or did you kind of bring it to them? I brought it to them. We um, MGM, which was the producer of the original series with Michael Hurst, after Michael kind of wrapped up his series, uh, Morgan O'Sullivan, who was one of the executive producers, brought came to me and said, look, we there's some talk about maybe, you know, maybe making this go on. And uh and I said, well, I'm, I'm a fan of the series. I thought Michael brought it to a wonderful ending. Last thing I want to do is write season seven of the Vikings. Mm-hmm. So uh, they very quickly said that wasn't what their intention was. And, you know, but they, they kind of wanted to go into that next part of the Viking story. If Michael, if Michael's part involved the, you know, the Lindus farm raid and the, and the start of the Viking era, what does the end of the Viking era look like? So, I thought that sounded like a pretty interesting space. And I I, I just, I liked the, some of the characters that we were discussing in terms of Leif Erikson and his sister Freitas and, and Harold Segerson, who audiences know Leif, but they don't really know Freitas and they don't really know Harold. And they've heard of people like Olaf the Stout. But if anybody has heard of Canute or Emma, man, you're better than I am because I didn't know <laughs> anything about that. But I, I did start digging into it and... Um, and once I found the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, that little known genocide that's clearly not a bank holiday in England, it, it's, uh, um, I knew that that was a really cool place because <clears throat> suddenly the, it, it, it started to resonate to me like 
where we were sort of as a, uh, you know, as a, uh, you know, in American society and in international society with between ideologies that are very right or very left or very, you know, strong in one direction and one in another. And that's where my Vikings were at that period. You know, they were, they were pagan and they were Christian. Um, and for a, an audience coming in who says, oh, I know what the Vikings look like, it, you, you were going to see them in a different light. And I thought that was really important to differentiate from the original series. So um, anyway, uh, that's once I got a bunch of things like that, Mike, I, suddenly I got excited and I started thinking, OK, you, you know, I think that we've got a really good entry point. Now, where do they go? And it is more complex than the original. Pretty much right away, you realize that this is a more intricate kind of world that we're weaving into. There's more infighting. There's more political backstabbing on all sides. It's almost like, you know, the Vikings are needing to play some catch up, you know, with some of these yeah. mind games that the British are playing throughout the season. How do you determine what you wanted to bring in maybe from the original show versus what you wanted to, to be new. Like how, did game of Thrones influence at all? Cause it feels kind of like there might be a little bit of that influence there too. Yeah. I think there might be just sort of um, subliminally. I, <laughs> yeah, think, sure. I think game of Thrones <laughs> is like, you know, it, it's hard to, to get around for that, but, but also I think I, I wanted to keep Viking subliminal. Also, I wanted it to feel like the old show, but I, I want it to be more accessible to people who never watched the old show, yeah. um, who might not have been a Viking fan, Viking in that sort of little V, you know, uh, Viking fan. Nobody is ever going to mistake uh, my writing from Michael Hurst. I mean, you know, you, you know, it's like you got Elizabeth and you've got Die Hard. OK, so <laughs> I, 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 I feel like. Um, uh, I like action and I'm, you know, and I like, I wanted, I wanted the show to be, have, be a genre show that you, that you could have great character-based action, uh, which I think differentiates from, you know, a bigger type of show where you might have dragons or, 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 or things like that, you know, where it's like more of an event type of piece. So my characters, the action that they, they bring to the screen in those scenes is from who they are you know, not who their culture is. And so, um, you know, the, the Greenlanders don't have any of that Norse background to them in terms of they didn't grow up raiding. They didn't grow up, you know, with that sort of Viking estate that we, we, we sort of have seen in the original show. They were hunters and, yeah. uh, and they were in a very rough place. And so, yeah, they could defend themselves, but they weren't fighters in the sense that we, we know what Vikings were. So for me, that was fun. They were learning as we're learning. So if you hadn't seen the original show, there's some places to come into it. There's definitely a fish out of water element with the characters that you choose to follow. Um, and I'm curious, like, how did you determine, like you, you touched a little bit on Michael's stuff being the, the early Vikings, your stuff being kind of the end period. Were there any other periods you considered where you're like, that might be interesting? Or was this always like, I've, I've got to go with this slice of the history? I just felt like this is like a really place, good place to come in. I needed to get at least 100 years past the old show um, for a lot of reasons. I wanted my Vikings to be caught in this sort of civil war between pagan and Christian. I also felt that, you know, you started this by saying, you know, sort of what happens next at the end of season one. And there's a lot of great stuff in season two because we follow, you know, I wanted my Vikings to get out of Scandinavia. 
I wanted mm-hmm. my Vikings to not just look like a bunch of blue-eyed white guys with blonde hair and you know cool beards and stuff. I I wanted that. And and the great thing about Viking culture is that they did get out. They did. I mean, there's Viking DNA all over the world. And so by starting it in you know at 1002 or around the start of the 11th century, there's a lot of good stuff out ahead of us. Uh, yes. And and I wanted to make it. You know, people think that the in the Norman invasion in 1066 sort of is the unofficial end of the Viking era. And so that gave me kind of a nice sort of bookend to the if Lindisfarne is the start of it and 1066 is the end of it. Now I have a finite playing field. You know, I can I can go tell stories in that in that area. Yeah. And, and Leif himself, like people who know his history and his sister, even they both got here to, to North America pretty yeah. quickly. I'm not sure if that's explored right away in season two, but is that something we can kind of expect for them to, to branch yeah, out into yeah. North America? Not, uh, I won't, I won't, um, I won't tease it too much, but they, we'll get there. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Okay. Mm-hmm. We, we yeah. can't, we can't bypass that. And also, you know, this idea too, that we do know from the sagas that Freitas did go to North America and was a big part of that. Um, we think of Leif Erikson, but we never really think about Freitas being, unless you're a, a Viking geek. And why? You know, mm. I know why Leif kind of went there, but I don't know why Freitas would. So coming up with this sort of backstory on Freitas as the keeper of the faith and that sort of thing starts to open up the door for why she would be so driven to find the new world. You touched before on the action elements that you really wanted to weave in there. I know you really kind of centered things around that London Bridge incident. You constructed four bridges for the sequence just to execute it, which I can't wait for people to see that because it's so suspenseful and, and awesome to behold as a Vikings fan. But Vikings fans also get, you know, they're, they're going to be pleased to see Kattegat again. Mm-hmm. Similarly, was that built from the ground up or were you able to kind of utilize certain pieces of set or locations that they'd used prior well Kattegat um we'll start there you know it was fun to walk I'd been on the set you know several times while I because I'd come and go when I was working on other projects I'd stop in Dublin and kind of check in on how Vikings were progressing and talk to actors but I never thought about coming I never in my wildest dreams thought I would come in and do Valhalla but when I did get on to Valhalla uh Tom Conroy our terrific production designer and I went to the back lot and and you know it hadn't been hadn't been used for two years at that point it was it just looked like an old derelict set you know (laughs) and um and i said to tom i said where are the vikings right now we're 125 years later are we do we have second story buildings in scandinavia do we have stone you know what what's different what's the look gonna be and so it was really fun to go back there and say this is where, you know, the, the audience will remember the road going up the hill, but what's now there? What's changed? So we did that per the archaeological evidence of what a Viking village would look like at the time of the 11th century. We also went and put different ramparts up down in the harbor, you know, which we shot in Lugalub, which is, you know, again, an, another set that we used from the original Vikings. But it was a lot of fun. And also, what does London look like? What does what does the Great Hall look like? I remember going into the Great Hall and saying, you know, I think it has a balcony. I think how do we go higher? How do we go bigger? How what does what does it look like? And having gone through Norway earlier, you know, to do some research, it was fun to go through some of the old uh, 11th century Christian churches, which had started out as great halls. So, you know, they just kind of built on what the pagan 
uh, group had and put a steeple up and they're pretty impressive. And um, so uh, that's kind of where I wanted to go with our great hall. What a sacrilege for the Viking great hall from, you know, from six seasons to suddenly become a church at some point. So, mm-hmm. so you know, we'll, we'll see if that happens, but I, I love the idea that it could, we could eventually get there. I know, you know, Leif certainly has a future in that. You know, with that in mind, since season two is already in the can, does that mean you're going to have a release like even in the summer that season two might come out? Yep, that's out of my pay grade, Mike. You know, I'm, <laughs> um, I, 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 you know, that's for. Uh, I, I certainly I hope that that people love Valhalla the first season as much as I really like it. I mean, I'm you know I've been around long enough to. I think any Vikings fan will be very happy. Yeah, I, well, I, I hope so. And I, you know, I, I also, I mean, I people ask me from time to time, you know what were you thinking? And I'm thinking, I'm just trying to entertain me. You know, I'm an old action guy and I, and I, and I, you know, the, the bar was set for me pretty high coming off of Viking. So we have to push the bar up. I wanted to, to do something that I would watch that I would be excited about, you know, that, that I'm seeing a fight that's a little different. I'm seeing a relationship that is twisted a different way than, you know, perhaps somebody else has done. So if I'm entertained, then that's a pretty good litmus test. At least it is for now. Okay. Well, uh, like I said, Vikings fans are going to be very happy with it. And and now it wouldn't be a proper interview without at least bringing up Die Hard a little bit. <laughs> uh, and this is not my only shirt, by the way. <laughs> I have many Die Hard shirts. Um, I think it's it's safe to call it one of you know the the best action movies of all time, if not the best. Uh, I'm curious what your relationship with the movie is now. Do you look back at it with fondness, or has it become this kind of ever looming figure in your career? You know what? I do look back at it with fondness because I was, you know, I was just out of graduate school. I'd never written an action movie. Um, I think that there's, (laughs) there's a type of, you know, I came out of the suspense where I'd I'd written a a pretty good suspense script, which, you know, had gotten people's attention. And, and so there's a lot of suspense in Die Hard. You know, it's a suspense story with um, big action set pieces, but I do look back at it with fondness because everybody that was involved in that movie, um, Bruce, John McTiernan, even in some respects, though, I don't think he would admit it, Joel Silver, all felt something to prove. You know, um, McTiernan clearly wanted to do something more, you know, that, that didn't have alien in it or something, you know, not, you know, not alien, but, you know, predator or something like that. And I think Bruce was clearly was trying to, you know, Break out of moonlighting. Yeah, 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 break out of moonlight. So um, uh, I I say this to writers all the time, too, that it it needed to be something about uh, it needed to have a human aspect to it. And I and I think that, you know, giving giving John McClane the family, giving John McClane something that, you know, the, the whole Christmas aspect the the whole idea of coming with one plan and ending up with a different you know story and a different outcome you know all of those things are uh, hold up so i'm glad it's held up as well as it has mike i'm um, i i i i still love the movie you know i yeah. still and when i watch it i remember what prompted that and what prompted that and that's always a fun a fun walk you know it's it it, it still holds up for me after all these years oh yeah very much for me as well. I, I know when we set up, there's a little playroom that we have with my kids where we set up all of our uh, Christmas movie posters and Die Hard is in the Christmas movie <laughs> posters that we hang up every year. Oh, that's so um, great. 
but I'm also curious, like there were a lot of sequels that came by. Was there a reason you were never approached to, to do the, the sequels or were you already off and, and doing your own thing? I was you know, doing elsewhere? other things. Well, when the, when Die Hard 2 came down the path, um, uh, it was actually uh, Doug Richardson uh, had written a really good script called, I think, 58 Minutes. And I was working on the sequel to 48 Hours at the time, so I wasn't available. But um, it was kind of like uh, a new regime had come in at Fox at that time. They needed a temple for the summer, you know, uh, let's take Doug's script and let's make that die hard, too. So they came to me and they said, you know, what do you think in terms of, you know, the concept and the characters and all those kinds of stuff? I came in and did um, not writing work on it, but definitely a lot of sort of like if you move this and do that. But but his script was really, really a, a very good basis as a totally standalone script. When it got moved into the, the diehard area, I think that's sometimes why people feel like it sort of stands out in the in the in all the diehards. It's just a little bit different, whereas Die Hard 3 sort of feels, again, more fresh, original and something else like that. But after after two, um, it just took on a life of its own. Yeah. Uh, and I was very happy to, I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it's a really good thing. Um, I'm glad that the franchise held up as well as it did. And now I think that it's kind of almost unrecognizable in terms of where the old guard is, you know, mm. in that, in that group. But, yeah. but um, look, I, I have very happy and good memories about that whole piece. It's, it's a great, great movie. I love it. I know, it, you know, there was a point where you, did your your directorial debut with Switchback, and then you decided to take a step back. I'm curious, what led to the the step back, if you don't mind me asking, and then what inspired the return? I, I don't talk about this very much, but but right after Switchback, I um, my wife became very ill, mm. and uh, and and I had two young children, and we were getting ready to move out to LA. I was just starting prep on another movie to direct, and it became very clear very quickly that it was from a personal standpoint, I was going to have to sort of, I was going to have mm-hmm. to take a hiatus. So I took a four year hiatus and my wife eventually passed away. Um, when I came back to the business, it was right in the middle of one of the writer strikes. So there's another year out of your life, you know, that sort of thing. So by the time I did get back into it, it I don't want it to sound like Rip Van Winkle, but the business has changed a lot. You know, yeah. our business changes a lot in four or five years. Think about where we went in this, just the streaming universe and, you know, from from literally renting movies on Die Hard, you know, I mean, on Die, on <laughs> Netflix to suddenly, um, you know, streaming them online. And yeah. um, so it was really interesting. And so I felt like the action world specifically, first of all, they weren't making big suspense shows like The Fugitive anymore. Yeah. OK, because that doesn't pencil out, you know, Fugitive probably had a had a, had a you know, uh, a gross cost of maybe 75 million. You know, you throw in prints and advertising and now you're way up above 100 million. And those movies were returning without the DVD aspect of it. They weren't returning, you know, 150 or 200 or so. Why make those movies anymore? Mm-hmm. And if you look at if you look at the great suspense thrillers, they came in, you know, in the 2000s from books, you know, big books that, you know, might have, uh, you know, would pull us in in that area. I think, however, the movie world also changed a bit. We were going more into Marvel. It was more of an international action became much more of an international genre. You know, a guy like a, a New York cop, you know, in <laughs> L.A. saving the world doesn't look as good in, you know, in an in international area. It's 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 not. Whereas 
uh, X-Men does and yeah. other things like that. So uh, not to make this a history of action movies and stuff like that, but <laughs> but I also was thinking in terms of what, what kind of, I just come to a big personal situation and then what kind of movies do I want to tell again? So I was very glad to be a writer. Um, it was fun to get back into the business of writing. It was fun um, to suddenly say, um, what kind of stories do I want to tell? And it just happened to be that television was changing very rapidly at that point. Yeah. And uh, like a lot of feature writers, I sort of thought, you know, uh, twist my arm, give me eight episodes to tell a character story. Yeah, I could do that. Whereas before episodic drama was sort of taboo. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, everybody has to, every episode has to stand alone so that we can mix and match and do it all over the place. Um, and there's nothing wrong with seeing, you know, um, CSI or, um, you know, law and order or something like that, where you can jump from season to season and like a big puzzle. But I love the idea of telling a, um, a story almost like a novel. And that was sort of my goal, you know, getting back. So I, I had to sort of retool, my, you know, a lot of people might think it's just, it just, you go from television to film and back and forth yeah. and stuff like that. Easy enough. It's right? a whole different group of executives and, yeah. you know, I, 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 and that sort of thing. So I worked really hard at that and I, um, uh, and I'm glad that I did because I think it's a really great time and an exciting time for audiences and, you know, certainly exciting time for, for writers right now. Yeah. And it seems like you have a good relationship established at Netflix. You're taking on Assassin's Creed for them next. Yeah. And we can't really say, you know, what you're doing with that project. There's a lot of secret, secretive <laughs> nature with that. But I'm curious where that is in the phase of production and when we can expect maybe casting and, and release news. We're, we're moving along. We're not, we're not <laughs> to casting yet, but okay. we, you know, it, it's a, a, a terrific team at Ubisoft. I mean, a phenomenal, great group of, of, of creative talent there. Netflix, you know, is just, the platinum standard for something like an Assassin's Creed. So I'm really excited about the whole project. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun show. I think it's going to be shot internationally. I think it's going to have lots of really, I, 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 one thing I can tell you, Mike, that I absolutely about it, it's going to have unbelievable action. So uh, I'm real, really excited about bringing that story. That after seeing both Vikings and the rest of your, your filmography, I can say I'm very confident it's going to be, be action packed. Looking forward to it immensely. So I know you did rewrites or, or writing on a fourth Indiana Jones film. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just curious how much different the, the final product versus your version was. Was there anything that remained there? Yeah, there was actually more than I thought. Um, I was the first writer on it. So, yeah. which was interesting. I, I, in fact, I probably invested a year, of, oh, maybe a year and a half of my life on that. And this is a totally different, this, you could fill the whole podcast with, uh, <laughs> with, 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 would love to. but I did, uh, I, I, you know, uh, even though, uh, I did not arbitrate on that. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I bet you, I learned more about storytelling and the business in that year with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Talk about a graduate school yeah. of education um, because a lot of those days are just simply sitting around talking, not working on the script, but talking about how Bruce the shark didn't work or what <laughs> happened with you know, Schindler's List or you know how you get a dinosaur to do such and such or 
what happened in the first Indiana Jones and how, you know, they lost Harrison for seven weeks in Indy two and how they shot around, you know, not having him there, you know, and how do you make a schedule work when you don't have your star? Believe me, as a showrunner, I pull that stuff out of the bag all the time. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I have to admit, I, uh, it, there was a lot of bad in that process that, you know, I, for example, <laughs> Uh, in those days, Stephen wanted a lot more aliens and Harrison wanted no aliens. So, you know, Uh-oh. I would fly back and forth from East Hampton, New York to Jackson Hole. And every time I would get see Steve, he would say, what happened to all the aliens? And then I'd see Harrison. He'd say, I told you, you know, no more aliens. So you can imagine the process. It was so it was a long. I give George a lot of credit in that. He, he, he managed to, to walk that line better than I did. All right. Well, I appreciate you giving me the extra time and and just talking about your career. And of course, Vikings Valhalla, which premieres on Netflix on February 25th. Everybody check it out, especially if you're a Vikings fan. It's really great stuff. Jeb, uh, I'm so glad you're back and working consistently. And I truly look forward to everything you do. Thanks for your time. Mike, it's great talking to you. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it.